Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The call to prayer breaks the hustle and bustle of an urban sonic landscape in unique ways. For Muslims living in Hamtramck, Michigan, broadcasting the Adhan was one of the ways of space-making, which demarcated the city as Muslim space. In Muslim American City, Gender and Religion in Metro Detroit, published with NYU Press in 2020, Alyssa Perkins explores the debates around the local call to prayer as well as other scenarios where Muslims navigate public and political spaces. Hamtramck has one of the largest concentration of Muslim residents in any American city. Perkins walks us through neighborhoods, homes, mosques, and schools in her rich ethnography to show how different communities plot gendered and religious boundaries. In our conversation, we discuss the history of Hamtramck, Bangladeshi immigration patterns, Yemeni transnational activities, high school classrooms, public prayer, gender distancing, LGBTQ rights, the relationship between secularism and pluralism, public space, interfaith coalitions, and the effects of legislation. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, here's my conversation with Alyssa Perkins about Muslim American City, Gender, and Religion in Metro Detroit. Welcome, Alyssa. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your your book, Muslim American City. Um, it's really uh, a wonderful project, and uh, the, the way you write about the community and, and their activities is really um, dynamic and, uh, and bright, and it's very interesting, all the, the kind of examples you bring, and you, you feel like you're, you're right in there on the ground. So uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Congratulations. Thank you. It took many years to research and write the book, so uh, <laughs> it's very appreciated. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, before we get into the book, we always start with a little bit about the authors. Um, so I was wondering if you could take a, a moment or two to tell us a little bit about um, your background in terms of how you got interested in uh, Muslim societies. Uh, were there there moments or mentors that perhaps shaped the approaches you take to your your research or um, the kind of analytical framework you take? Uh, what was your your path to become the scholar you are? Um, that's a great question um, and something I like to talk about. Um, it was definitely circuitous path, I guess, um, and there's many different versions of it. But one thing I could uh, say for sure is that when I was um, I was an English major at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, in the '90s, and that's when we were like, um, you know, really learning about. That's when I really learned about race, class, gender, power, and things like that for the first time. And almost all of my classes during that time had a feminist sort of, um, you know, I was as an English major, we always looked at, at gender particularly. 
and I was really interested in women, women's agency, um, and through through the lens of women's poetic expression. Um, and so I was kind of styling myself as sort of a feminist theorist or a gender theorist at you know at a young at a young age, and I was mainly looking at at U.S. feminisms or Western feminisms. And then my very last semester uh, at Wesleyan, I uh, fate would have it that I took a class in Islamic architecture um, with um, a wonderful professor, and that was really my first encounter with Islam. And um, you know, we spent the first like maybe 10, 15% of the class just doing a basics of like, what is Islam? And then we got into the architectural and art aspects. And I was just um, surprising, surprised myself by being so fascinated with it. And then that was my very last semester. So I didn't have, you know, more time as an undergraduate to explore these issues. Um, after leaving undergraduate, I, you know, had time to really think through I always knew I wanted to be a scholar and go back to graduate school for something. And so um, at that point, I started like self-educating more about Islam, learning about uh, women in Islam. And um, I actually was taking non-matriculated classes at uh, UC Berkeley. I I moved to California and I was taking non-matriculated classes there just as an undergraduate. And I had um, some encounters with professors there, such as uh, Karen Kaplan in the Women's Studies Department who helped encourage me to um, think very critically about Western feminism and its limits. And um, uh, so at that point, another fate uh, intervened, which was at UC Berkeley at the time. There was um, a a, a summer program in in Arabic intensive. And so everything kind of came together. I was like, I'm going to study Arabic. I want to be an anthropologist, not literature anymore. I want to do anthropology. I want to study like contemporary life. And I want to study gender in Islam because it seemed very challenging at that time, not realizing what I know now about Islam. I was under some of the same miscomprehensions as others that there's um, that women in Islam don't have the same rights as we do or don't have as much rights as we do. So I wanted to try to reconcile um, how could they how could some Muslim women call themselves feminists? And that's what uh, drove me into graduate school and with, uh, with 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 feminism in mind and um, and wanting to critique Western feminism, I guess. So um, for this project uh, specifically, can you talk a little bit about um, how it started, uh, how it then developed uh, into a book project? Were there transitions you you made from uh, working on it in kind of early graduate days to uh, when you transformed it into the book? Absolutely. So just to continue where the narrative let off, um, so I I got into a PhD program at uh, University of Texas at Austin, and the reason I chose that program was because I um, I was given the opportunity to work with Deborah Kapchan, who is a scholar at NYU now, but she was at UT then, and she had written about um, gender and in, in, in Islam in Morocco in, in very challenging and and wonderful ways. And so as her student, I um, also, you know, st- decided to study Morocco and I was able to spend first three months there and then a whole year as a Fulbright scholar and was able to pursue really looking at gender and, and Islam. I um, did a study about Islamic family law in Morocco 
and was able to talk to Moroccan women who called themselves feminists and Moroccan women who didn't who didn't like the term feminists, but who through my interviews and engagements with them, you know, I realized that these women um, had a very strong sense of agency and um, were not falsely conscious or anything like that. And so um, my experience in Morocco was just very wonderful and deep. And then when I came back, when that was over, I had written up my MA, uh, my master's on Morocco. And I realized, uh, you know, uh, Professor Capchan, who was my mentor, um, took a position at NYU and I was left at UT with a lot of Americanists. And so I wanted to take the lessons that I learned about, you know, um, Islam and feminism in Muslim majority nations and, you know, work with the professors who were available uh, to me at UT to see if I can work in the U.S. Um, and one professor who was uh, very influential to me um, was John Hardigan, who's famously written several books about Detroit. And, um, and so I got my method from John Hardigan, my understanding of how we can study um, urban, you know, uh, urban life in very complicated ways and how we can study identities in complicated ways by looking at urban spaces rather than kind of essentializing and honing in on individuals. You know, this way you can look at sort of the structures and the the contexts that people find themselves in and react to rather, you know, it's a, it's a very non-essentialistic way of, of looking at um, at people in relation to each other and in relation to space. Um, another huge influence at the time, you know, or still is my my um, advisor, Kamran Ali at UT, who uh, introduced me to the works of Talal Assad and scholars like that. And so that I could really understand um, secularism and come up with a way to try to critique secularism, the boundaries of secularism. Um, so between, uh, you know, my advisor, Kamran Ali, and my mentor, John Hardigan, and other wonderful scholars who were on my committee, um, you know, I was able to uh, craft a, pr a proposal, you know, for my PhD, which was quite different than my MA, but informed by my MA. Um, and then uh, choosing my field site, well, part of it was, you know, reading John Hardigan's work, and he made Detroit seem like a very cool place to be. If you see his book, Racial Situations, um, that made Detroit very interesting. And so then I, um, so the, the obvious choice is Dearborn. Everyone associates um, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans with Dearborn. And so me and my husband um, took a trip to the area to see like, okay, like a preliminary research trip. And also I had heard about Hamtramck, Michigan, which is, um, you know, also in that Detroit metro area. Um, and much less had been written about it. I had heard about Hamtramck and knew about Hamtramck because in 2004, there was a very well-publicized debate over the call to prayer in Hamtramck, where, um, you know, Muslim Americans living in Hamtramck, Michigan, um, wanted to gain the right to, um, you know, sound the call to prayer from their masjids or mosques. And somehow that turned into a very contentious issue and lots was written about it. Um, it turns out they did have the right anyway, <laughs> because those church bells have the right to sound their call to their, you know, call, I guess you could also call it a call to prayer. <laughs> so, but um, they wanted not only to assert their right, but to um, show the city that they were willing to go through a process of urban citizenship and um, make that 
uh, sound accepted, you know, through legislation. So that's a chapter in the book, but um, I didn't know what it would be at the time. So I went to Dearborn, which is a fascinating, amazing place. And I went to Hamtramck and I was thinking about, you know, and I knew that I wanted to study, um, I wanted to do an urban ethnography in a very bounded locale. So I knew it would be one or the other. And uh, eventually I made the decision to study Hamtramck and not Dearborn. One reason is because really very little had been produced on Hamtramck. Um, there was one study by Nabil Abraham written in 78, which is his dissertation. And that was really the only full-length study on um, anything to do with Islam and Hamtramck. And there's other, very few other dissertation works that had been done. Meanwhile, there's a thriving industry, you know, thriving group of scholars who have addressed Dearborn in many ways. Another reason I chose Hamtramck was because of its size as a 2.3 square mile city with about 23,000 people, it's, uh, it seemed to me a very digestible you know, place to be where I could really get to know the city. I could walk from one end to the other. you know. And um, also another thing that was compelling was that when my husband and I were in, um, you know, took that preliminary trip and we were you know, maybe sitting in a restaurant and talking to people, getting to know people, and someone would ask, well, why are you here? And I would talk to them about my interests and people would very often say, oh, don't go to Hamtramck. <laughs> don't go to Hamtramck. It's not the best place. You know, there's many better places to go. There was this, and there still is, um, to some extent, um, certain prejudices from many different communities about Hamtramck as kind of off the beaten path, idiosyncratic, you know, into itself, not out of step with, you know, some of the things that are happening in the rest of the world, uh, very like insular, you know, and instead of having that turn me off to the project, that turned me on to the project. And then somebody could troubleshoot and say, okay, well, if you're trying to study Islam and Muslims in America, why do you want to go to such an idiosyncratic place? You're not going to be able to generalize it. And it's not going to give you information about really what Islam in America is like if you study such uh, a place off the beaten path. And so to me, you know, coming from that UT school and like, you know, of urban studies, um, with someone like John Hartigan, um, I would say, well, I, I don't, I don't have any interest in generalizing. You know, as an anthropologist, uh, what we traffic in is the local and the particular. And you know, as anthropologists, uh, we want to really study the local, the particular, um, the everyday. And then, you know, this is then we can also read other books that are local, particular, everyday, compare and contrast between them, and come up with um, an idea about the range of possibilities rather than trying to, you know, create a, a generalization about, well, this is what Islam in America is like. So um, for many reasons, including certain people I met in my preliminary trip, um, Hamtramck really seemed like the place to be. And um, I'm very, very happy with that decision. Um, and my husband is too, because he also had a fantastic time in the city. <laughs> That's really interesting the way things kind of interweave and, and cross back and forth um, to take you to this project and, and, and how it turned out uh, in the book. Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, uh, you do in the book uh, and you kind of lay out early on um, is the various uh, kind of overlapping approaches you you take uh, in order to understand the intersection of uh, the people and the and the place in terms of uh, I believe you call it territory based 
um, practice-based and a phenomenological approach. So could you, you talk a little bit about um, these kind of different approaches that you uh, put into conversation throughout the book? Uh, what, what do they mean in, you, in your book, in your project? Um, and then why did you see as this as kind of an effective way to, to understanding uh, the complexity of Hamtramck? Sure. So space is uh, very important in the book. And then in the introduction, I sort of carve out three different approaches to space that you just mentioned. But I think um, to start, it would be interesting to talk about why space is so important and how space, you know, and space making or place making fits in. And so I use the term um, space making, but many scholars use the term place making. And um, in my mind, um, I would I would sort of use those terms um, interchangeably. And so we could think about space making and place making um, as one in the same. And so what does it mean to create a public space was one of the questions in the book. And so this um, question about what does it mean as um, a Muslim American to create public space was important, but not only what does it mean as a Muslim American, Really, what does it mean as a Hamtramck resident to create space? What does it mean as an Ameri- you know, someone in Amer- a person in America to create space was more of you know these overarching questions. Um, so you know, there's one point in the introduction where I say that you know this book helps me understand not only like how you know how like not only how minorities or religious and racial minorities work in cities. Um, but how, like, so now we, from the book, we can understand how people live in cities and how they create urban citizenship, how they create spaces for themselves, but how we can understand as anthropologists, how do cities work to kind of create people, right? So it's this dualism. It's this, like, both, uh, both sides come in. This book should help us understand how cities work, specifically how does one city work? And how does uh, to create, uh, you know, to to create the conditions for certain identities and processes to happen? And how do certain people use the city to create certain identities um, as kind of a two way street? So the way space comes up in the book is, well, liberal secularism, first of all, comes up in the book. So one of my claims is that, you know, as a starting point, I ask readers to agree with me at the beginning of the book that. As Americans, we don't live in this neutral place. We don't live in a place where anything goes as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. And that's something that I spend a lot of time on with um, in my classes, even graduate classes, undergraduate classes, this critique of liberal secularism. And certain times people get upset with the critique of liberal secularism because they'll say, well, what would you like instead? What would be better than if we try to tear down liberal secularism, what are we left with? And so I'm not, you know, in the book and in the critique, a critique is not trying to tear something down and do away with it. A critique is to try to look at a system and evaluate the extent to which that system is um, doing what it says it's going to be doing, the extent to which that system is actually meeting its highest ideals. So what are the ideals of liberal secularism? is to say that we have a neutral center from which to adjudicate and from which to govern, a neutral center so that as long as somebody in America, their behaviors aren't impinging or hurting somebody else um, or breaking any specific laws that are supposed to be just very like objective, 
then they should be able to do what they want to do. So the critique of liberal secularism is to say, well, this center um, isn't actually unbiased. This center is uh, created by people who come from a European, a Western Christian tradition so that, um, and this is where someone like William Connolly comes in with his idea of the visceral modes of appraisal. So, um, you know, we're not, the people, the founders, the framers of liberal secularism, um, to them using common sense, certain things seem right, certain things seem wrong, certain things seem to um, help with, um, you know, gaining or achieving the, the great values of liberty, equality, um, and certain things don't seem to. And um, the logic that they use is very much based on what we could call a visceral mode of appraisal, like, well, like in that argument about pornography, like, well, we know it's pornography if it, if, if it seems like pornography, like, you know, we know it's wrong if it seems wrong. We know it's against um, our core values. It, ultimately, if it seems that way, um, there's that layer to liberal secularism where the center, rather than being a core center, was uh, the, the, the norms and forms of liberal secularism were created by people who have certain backgrounds. So uh, not to belabor that point, but so not only is our ideologies, uh, our, we have a like liberal secular ideology, um, also it's um, superimposed onto space. Um, so it's not only the forms of behavior that we think are acceptable or the kind of ideas that we think are acceptable. My argument in the book is that liberal secular ideology gives us a way to encounter and assess what kinds of expressions belong in public space, what kind of um, behaviors belong in public space, and ultimately what is public space and what is private space. And so I'm really talking about, I guess, in this in this like what uh, 30 page introduction, you know, I'm trying to really fight some like big, um, you could say these behemoth ideas about, um, you know, what are the kind of things that we take for granted, you know? And so um, the space-based approach was designed so that we could really capture, well, not only from the perspectives of the Muslim minority, you know, religious, well, they're not minorities in the city because there's many, many Muslims in the city, but from what, um, you know, there are, you know, Muslim Americans living in the city who have certain ideas about the proper use and division of public space. And there are many other groups in the city with their own ideas. But other groups, um, you know, maybe have the, you know, liberal, uh, secular kinds of ideologies um, on their side because they've also grown up and imbibed those kinds of messages. So I'm trying to say um, through looking at the encounter in space between um, people with different ideologies of how to use space, that will give us a chance to really understand um, some of these more abstract uh, ideas about what is liberal secularism. We can look at them on the ground. We could look at them through contestations over material practices um, and, um, and interact, not only contestations, but also, you know, interactions, um, because not every interaction is, is a contestation. And so we did talk about, um, I'm going back to the, to the book now to find those three, those three terms that we used, uh, that I used, um, those, the three ways of looking at space. Okay. So the first one I talked about, um, is the territory-based approach. Um, so uh, one thing I'd like to mention is that, you know, this book is, let's we say, we could say it's about like making Muslim space in Hamtramck. So what is Muslim space in Hamtramck? 
I argue that Muslim space in Hamtramck is the whole city because there's not a single corner of the city where Muslims and non-Muslims don't interact in. Now, other books about other cities can talk more about certain enclaves or areas or mosques or um, where there's a concentration of Muslim Americans as the Muslim spaces in the city. But I did not have that ability in Hamtramck because of the smallness of the city, the density of the city. There's no Muslim space in Hamtramck that's more Muslim than any other space because the, the city belongs, you know, it, at the time, perhaps it was 40% Muslim American which is by far like the highest concentration of Muslim Americans in um, any place in the, in the U.S. Uh, in terms of a city, in any city in the U.S. So the whole, the whole of Hamtramck in this book is Muslim space. Um, it's also non-Muslim space. You know, it depends on, the, um, it, it depends on who, who you are and what kinds of particular histories that you're invoking. So the territory-based approach, um, yes, there are certain spaces that we recognize um, as um, spaces that have a high concentration of Muslims in them. So if we're only using the territory-based approach, we'd be looking more specifically or most specifically at institutions, mosques, and gathering places. But that was not a satisfactory approach, although um, you know, it does exist in the book. Like we do, we do study those places um, you know, uh, for, you know, uh, as, as, as reference points. The practice-based approach um, talks about how acts like praying in the streets, which happens at Veterans Memorial Park on um, the Eid, um, broadcasting the call to prayer, wearing hijab or face veils. So these are ways, the practice-based approach, where we see space being created by sort of transitory practices, um, rather than saying, oh, a Muslim space is a mosque. We also then say, okay, people walking in and out of the mosque on a Friday, the whole city changes on like Juma time at the time of prayer, Everyone stores clothes um, and people make, um, you know, trips to, you know, everyone, everyone is walking to the mosque and driving to the mosque. So the whole city changes. And so uh, not only the mosque itself, but the whole city with people heading toward the mosque is um, also Muslim space. And the third approach is the phenomenological approach, which I hinted at earlier in, in my description, which is the idea that, um, any space is um, is created um, also in people's understanding and people's perceptions. So we have this idea of phenomenology, which is a kind of philosophical concept of you know we're going to like the anthropo an anthropology that takes a phenomenological approach is going to uh, focus on the perceptions of how people experience the world around them rather than any kind of objective fact. So in the phenomenological approach, a perfect example actually that. Um, comes from a book called All-American Yemeni Girls by Lucia Sarub is you take, for example, um, a devout Muslim American student in a high school class where they start looking at kind of like certain kinds of art or certain images of, um, you know, perhaps that are considered unacceptable or that they don't want to engage with. So simply avert your gaze, you know, and now you're creating a Muslim space in that classroom because you don't want to engage or encounter certain materials that you find offensive um, or against your, you know, against what you want to let in and out of your field of perception, then you avert your gaze. And now the, um, the classroom is becoming a Muslim space for you as well. So those are the, that's the layered approach that um, we're not just looking at places we're not just looking at practices. Uh, we're looking at places, 
practices and modes of perception. Yeah, it's um, it's useful, and especially in this project, I think you're right. Um, if you took just one of those, um, you really would have uh, limited what you could uh, understand about the community. And uh, I, I think it's a very effective uh, trilogy of approaches, so to speak. Um, the other thing that you um, you offer, and um, you know, it's still kind of theoretical, but maybe you could start taking us, uh, bringing it on the ground for us a little bit, is. Um, you know, a lot of what you're doing in the project is thinking about um, gender difference and gender organization, um, and you use this term uh, civic purda. Um, so could you uh, tell us what is what does this word purda mean? Um, how are you using this this concept of civic purda in your study, and, and how does that help you kind of uh, illuminate or better understand your, your subjects? Absolutely. So... Um... I just say I like the term civic purda um, because um, the terms to some people might see, see, seem like a contradiction in terms, um, the two terms juxtaposed. Like we have the civic, which has to do with um, external, traditionally male space, um, you know, in the Western tradition, um, the civic realm, um, the realm of externalities, the realm of governance, the realm of, you know, the public um, and leisure and freedom. Um, and then you have the private space, which is traditionally coded as a female space and um, the realm of sort of emotions, of family, um, domesticity. Of course, I want to take all this apart. Um, but, you know, the, the term uh, parda is a term that is, um, I mean, it really means like um, separation. It's this ideology, you could say, uh, parda is a mode of practice in which, you know, women are um, sh- are shielded from from men and are able to maintain a private space. So, I mean, the term is used differently across different Muslim cultures and societies. So, what that separation entails can really be um, can really vary. But we can say we can shorthand it to say parda is this um, privacy, the separation. I mean, we also have the term hijab, um, which, you know, is usually means like um, in, in, you know, Western conception, like, or, you know, in, in many, in many circumstances, hijab is simply um, translated as a headscarf, but really it's like a curtain of separation as well. Um, So, you know, in, in Western society, we can never forget that, you know, in Western societies and like, let's say even U.S. societies, um, men and women are expected to behave differently in public space. Um, and, um, you know, just if you don't, you know, if one doesn't believe me, just go into a sports bar as a woman, you know, and, um, you know, and, you know, men and women are, and, and or go into a, you know, a, a, a salon, like a, a hairdressing place as a man. There's many, many places that are encoded as masculine spaces and feminine spaces in which the other gender doesn't feel comfortable. There's also certain kinds of dress, obviously, that, you know, men and women are expected. And of course, much more on, you know, um, on uh, uh, the gays is much usually more on women about what, how they should um, behave and cover. And so, um, the way that Westerners dress and behave or the Mar- Americans dress and behave as our standards, um, they shift over time, but we kind of forget that. And we think that, oh, oh, Western women, we have our American as American women. I have freedom. I can wear whatever I want. I could wear a mini skirt. I could wear heels. I could wear this. I could wear that. And, you know, nobody is, um, 
nobody has the right to say anything and I could go anywhere and do anything. But, you know, reading feminist scholarship and um, critical scholarship, we see that that there are a lot of consequences for women for not um, dressing in, 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 in a, a ways that are very, you know, considered appropriate and standard in every society. Um, yet, you know, one person who does a great job talking about like turning the gaze towards Western women is Fatima Marnissi, who happens to be a Moroccan feminist sociologist. And she has a really wonderful book uh, where she reflects on um, her trip to the United States and trying to go shopping at a place like Macy's or Bloomingdale's and not finding anything that was appropriate for her um, for many different reasons and how uncomfortable she felt um, because the style of dress that, that was being advocated was so constraining um, so sexualized, um, you know, so much that women have to um, wear clothes that, um, you know, accentuate their certain parts of their bodies that she didn't feel comfortable or happy about. Um, and it wasn't like she was trying to, she wanted to just just fit in. And she went to Macy's just to get something that fit in. But instead, she felt so, um, so torn up, you know, just um, on display and, and uncomfortable with the, with the clothing. Um and so, you know, and that was cultural and religious. It wasn't like, oh, she, you know, it wasn't just because she had some kind of like religious virtue. It was, it was very much cultural and religious. And, you know, those two terms, the following Talal Assad, between what is culture and what is religion is something we have to break down as well. Um, because, you know, what is, what, where do the boundaries of one begin and end? And in some societies, there, there aren't and uh, necessarily, and, and even in, you know, across time and across different societies, the boundaries between culture and religion um, are very porous, if not, you know, non-existent. So back to this idea of civic porta is that, um, you know, I wanted to, let's say, uh, one thing I like to also talk about with my book is to move from you know, fear uh, to curiosity. So I feel that when um, women or when, uh, you know, when when Westerners encounter Muslim women dressing and act, perhaps acting different than what they expect as normative, it's a, it inspires a lot of fear, especially when you have like a face veil or a burqa, like a full body covering, or when you think that, you know, certain Muslim women don't want to mingle freely with men or mingle regularly with men in, in public spaces, um, that inspires a lot of fear. People often come up with this idea of like, oh, it's like um, separate but equal. In it's That's the horrible thing that we did, uh, creating like two classes, like, um, you know, uh, African-Americans and and, and, and non-African-Americans and whites and how we try to say they have to stay separate from us. And so anytime we have some separation um, mandated in a culture or suggested in a culture, a cultural system, we think automatically that's an unfreedom. And so with this term civic parta, I try to say that the, the women, and all I can say is the women that I know in, or that I know in Hamtramck, who are part of the Yemeni community, part of the Bangladeshi community, um, mainly those were the Muslim women I knew. They had certain ways and many various ways of, of dressing and behaving that tried to enact covering, modesty, and separation as virtues that they considered very um, much um giving them agency and control over themselves um, about how they wanted to be looked at, about how they wanted to be seen, about the messages that they wanted to convey. Um, and so their form of 
of parda, you know, their form of dress and behavior and maintaining lines of separation between men and women were um, very much um, things that made them feel comfortable and that made them feel like they were able to act the, gain the most power as they defined it in a situation. Um, now, what is civic parda? Well, it's simply like that the way that by adopting these behaviors, these separation, modes of separation and modes of covering, um, they were able to, that was their, the way that they considered best to conduct themselves and to organize public-private divides and to conduct themselves in public. And so by doing these activities that we could consider parda activities, separating and modest behaviors, um, they were able to best achieve their potential in terms of in, in a, interacting in the public sphere and public life, in creating a class for themselves and creating a collective voice for themselves. So for example, um, my earliest, one of the earliest examples I encountered was I was a uh, uh, volunteering in an ESL classroom, and um, it was 100% Yemeni women in the class because Yemeni women in the community had asked um, a social service agency to create a class just for them, and um, this, you know, the city also funded part of it, and so this was the way that these women felt the most comfortable. And they would come in. Most of them were wearing face veil, and many of them took off the face veil in that space. But they wouldn't have been able to take. They wouldn't have felt comfortable otherwise. And so that was a way that women collectively made an impact on the city and its services um, and uh, social service organizations by enacting this ideal of separation. Another example um, was that there are many, many schools, as we know, in Detroit and Hamtramck is a mass closure of uh, public schools and uh, a great um, uh, efflorescence of uh, charter schools. And there were um, several charter schools in this 2.3 square mile city and its borders that uh, were Muslim majority charter schools, you know, that mainly the teachers and the admin and the founders were Muslim Americans. And these schools... Um, enacted gender separation, much in the way Catholic schools in Hamtramck did in the past. And, you know, women were able to, um, you know, we have, there's women principals of those schools um, and women teachers and women administrators and, and women students who are doing all kinds of public debating and all kinds of things that, um, you know, but they want to minimize unnecessary interactions between the genders, uh, between the students. And so um, there's other examples of women working together um, in a separated context and in women's only context to enact different kinds of activities for the common good, for the municipal good, such as Habitat for Humanity. Um, I went with a group of Muslim women separately um, to do a Habitat for Humanity project. Women raised money for feeding, um, you know, uh, hungry people and doing all kinds of activities, um, uh, young and old women, young and older women, um, in a, in a way that they felt comfortable. So this is able to say parda, meaning separation and modesty, which is usually th thought of as a very domestic kind of um, out of the way activity that will take women away from the um, public life. But actually through parda, women were able to achieve um, different kinds of um, civic engagement. And um, that's the term civic parda. It's uh, it's a it's a useful um, kind of concept that I think you employ very uh, creatively throughout, and there you know the middle of the book um, is really this kind of rich 
uh, ethnography of um, your experiences with with Yemeni women and then Bangladeshi women. And you've kind of um, started to and throughout the conversation kind of uh, sprinkled us with some examples. But uh, I'm wondering if you could uh, briefly just kind of give us a few um, themes or or, uh, ideas about um, where these two communities kind of uh, run parallel and then where we see some differences between um, the kind of practicing of, of civic purda, so to speak, uh, uh, it, within these two different communities? Um, absolutely. So um, one thing that's interesting, too, is that, um, you know, this study um, between, you know, my the, the bulk of the study was between 2007 and 2009, and then, as it says in the introduction, I did make frequent trips back to Hamtramck up until the publication of the book, you know, to keep refining and working on it. So in between, um, you know, the bulk of the, of the work that I did and today, we had a lot, we've had a lot of changes because of the crisis in Yemen. Um, so there has been um, a huge spike in um, Yemenis and Hamtramck. So there was like some complicated things that happened because when the, the war started in Yemen around 2012, 2013, um, uh, at that point, um, people started, you know, wondering if they should start bringing more of their family members over. People in Yemen started thinking about coming over. And so there was between like when, when the, when the, it seemed like the crisis was going to keep on going, people actually started, um, you know, wanting to, to more, more people started wanting to leave Yemen. So there was a spike, um, in, um, in, in, in people coming from Yemen to live in America for a few years. And then came, uh, what we can think of as the Muslim ban, which cut all that off. But nevertheless, in between a few years between the crisis in Yemen getting worse and the Muslim ban in the U S, um, there was a huge spike of Yemenis coming over. And those Yemenis who came over were able to build on the um, achievements of the Yemeni Americans who had been there before to really um, propel themselves into public space. And so um, you can see in the book that um, I do give information about how much has changed, you know, in between my main research 2007 to 2009 and the publication of the book. And one of the things that changed was, you know, it, for um, a while in Hamtramck, like the Yemenis were there first, pretty much. The, I mean, the, in, in, as, as a community. So Yemenis in Hamtramck really came over to work in factories. Um, and, it, you know, um, and then when there was deindustrialization, they kept coming through these chains of ser- these serial migration. And then they ended up having like working in the gas station instead of the factory and the sort of like neoliberal sort of um, econ- economies, you know, and working in restaurants and things like that. And so because um, there was Yemeni Americans who had been there um, during the time that factories were still, you know, people were still drawn to factory work, then they kept coming. And so they um, they had a, a community there in this in you know starting in the 60s and the 70s and um, kept growing and Yemenis in the city tended to live more so in certain enclaves to the south of the city and they developed a couple of um, of, of masjids of mosques and um, 
there was um, a, a Yemeni American, um, the late uh, Dr. Abdul Ghazali, who was one of the one of the first um, council people, uh, the Yemen, uh, the first Muslim American council people, one of the first. Um, and so they, um, Yemeni Americans, mainly in the beginning, um, maintained a lot of of their businesses in that enclave area. Um, and meanwhile, during the time that Yemenis were in Hamtramck, there was such a thing called um, Bangladeshi takeover, which um, is a, a term that you know Muslims and non-Muslims and Bangladeshis and non-Bangladeshis use in the city often with good humor, meaning that um, there was a, a period of time where many Bangladeshis came to Hamtramck. This was like in the maybe in the mid to uh, two thousand, uh, you know, two thousand and six, two thousand around the middle of um, the you know first decade of the uh, you know of after you know two thousand. 2007, many Bangladeshis started coming from Queens in their second migration um, to Hamtramck because they found that there was the um, they could buy properties for much less. They could buy bigger houses. Uh, maybe a big family was living in an apartment in New York, and they could get a house in Hamtramck for you know even less than that, and they could open a business in Hamtramck. And so Bangladeshis came um, with. Um, let's say they were in their second migration. So a lot of the time they came with sort of um, some kind of know-how and also new Bangladeshis coming from Bangladesh often came with some, some English. And so they sort of um, became the, the um, immigrant community or the newcomer community to Hamtramck. That was the sort of um, poster child, you could say of what um, a new immigrant community could do. They, um, Took many seats in the um, in the city council. They built up a, a corridor in the city, which was named after them as Bangladesh Avenue. Um, and they had flourishing businesses, restaurants, and political life. And um, and then what happened after that was that in uh, about ten years later, you could say that Yemeni Americans had their own Yemeni takeover that outstripped the Bangladeshis because a lot of Bangladeshis used Hamtramck as a gateway city and came to Hamtramck, established themselves and stayed there just long enough to, um, you know, gain enough uh, to establish homes in the suburbs and the surrounding suburbs. And so um, rather instead, the Yemenis um, don't tend to have that pattern. They tend to come to Hamtramck and stay in Hamtramck and build on Hamtramck because um, and this might, you know, not still be the case at the current moment. We'll see. But uh, Yemenis were very uh, transnationally oriented, and so rather than invest and keep, um, you know, invest in building a suburban home and disappearing into an enclave, they would like to, you know, invest back home and build homes in Yemen, and um, and maybe eventually thinking they would retire there or at least maybe spend um, three months every few years there, and so. Um, there was a slightly different, uh, so very much like when we talk about the differences between the Yemenis and the Bangladeshi community, very much is in flux right now. Um, and so, um, especially with the the crisis in Yemen and Yemeni forms of transnationalism, um, and of course with the pandemic, um, all of these kinds of orientations are um, 
are under, you know, duress. But um, you could say that, um, you know, Yemenis in Hamtramck, the Yemeni women in Hamtramck, like I mentioned, they had requested the city to make their very own gender-separated class. Um, Bangladeshi women um, that I met in ESL classrooms were, you know, going to mixed classes. Um, I found that there was a really great range of ways of being Muslim for Bangladeshi women in Hamtramck. Um, in terms of how they dressed and the kinds of separation that they um, that they advocated, there was a very large, uh, very wide range of acceptable ways of being a, Muslim, a, a Bangladeshi Muslim woman in in Hamtramck. Um, women, some women, you know, dressed very modestly with, um, you know, a full face veil and an abaya, indistinguishable from a Yemeni counterpart. And some women and um, just uh, didn't, um, you know, dressed in a way that would be indistinguishable from, a, you know, a, a, just a, a non-Muslim or non-Bangladeshi woman. Um, you know, some women, um, I knew Bangladeshi women who worked, for example, in bars and, you know, in a, in a, that, or a restaurant that served alcohol. Um, and that, you know, she didn't drink alcohol, but she found it was okay because, you know, she found that in her, the way that she interpreted her religion, that it's sometime you have to just, um, survive, you know, it's okay to, um, you know, she had a very flexible way of interpreting, um, her religion and, and, um, what it allowed her to do. On the other hand, um, you know, there was, I found less of a range among the Yemeni, uh, Muslim women I knew in Hamtramck, um, Yemeni women in Hamtramck, I found at that time and still perhaps today really favored wearing um, the black um, abaya, which they call balto. Um, and um, many women wore the face veil, even if they hadn't done so in Yemen. They wanted to do it in the U.S. because it was trending. It was what other women were doing. Um, and I found that, you know, Yemeni women in Hamtramck had more of a transnational orientation so they were um, interested in um, in in looking back or looking towards um, Yemen and um, and families and large family networks in, in Yemen and thinking about um, you know a life the future life that would uh, maintain a foot in both worlds and so um, uh, where, where where I'm trying to avoid making generalizations I found much more hom- homogeneity among the Yemeni women I knew. In um, in Hamtramck and the Bangladeshi women I knew, um, but although young women from both groups were definitely um, making great gains in terms of education and career, um, there was no uh, it, it, there was no limit on on that for either group. Um, you know, young women who who were ambitious in both groups, um, there was paths for them to. Um, go to you know university, go to graduate school, and have careers for themselves, and so it wasn't um, constraining uh, the, whatever kinds of transnational orientation that Yemeni women have or had did not constrain their ambitions um, as long as they um, conducted themselves in um, in in a way that was um, you know conducting you know pursuing education, pursuing career in such a way that also their values as being members of family and community would also not be sacrificed for it. And I should say, uh, I mean, we, we certainly don't have an, enough time to talk about all the, the detail you go into in the book, but the, the middle section of the book really lays out uh, a multitude of spaces and ways of being uh, in both of these communities that I think is really um, very well done. Um, the last portion of the book and the, in the, 
final two kind of subsequent chapters, um, you look at um, not these kind of uh, internal ways of being Muslim, but um, kind of how um, most the Muslims of uh, Hamtramck are participating in uh, this broader public uh, in which they exist. And uh, it's, it's mainly through uh, issues of, of law and legislation that come up. Um, one in the case that you mentioned earlier of this, um, the call to prayer, uh, but another, another case um, you focus on is around LGBTQ uh, legislation. Um, can you talk about, um, you know, why these two uh, cases in, in, the, in the terms of, I mean, law in a sense, um, where do uh, your subjects uh, uh, kind of fit into this? Um, because you're, you're looking at both kind of their internal um, ways of being, but then uh, in these cases we see a variety of ways of Muslims and non-Muslims uh, both uh, coming at odds, but then also coming together. Um, and why do you think this issue of, of legislation and law becomes an important Kind of religious question in a sense. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a great question. Sorry, there's a lot there. I know. <laughs> no, it's a good question. So basically, um, you know, before I came to Hamtramck, I was aware of the call to prayer controversy um, and its resolution. That was before that happened in two started in the end of 2003 and it lasted through 2004. And then, um, you know, part of my study was to, you know, three years later to see. Um, you know, what was the aftermath of that and how did people remember it? So the, the chapter on the call to prayer is based on um, people's memories and archival work. Um, and that was like, you could say that was 2004 was the first time that Muslim Americans as a group, as a collective, identifying as Muslim Americans, not identifying as necessarily Yemeni or Bangladeshi um, or any other uh, qualifier, uh, that was when this collective identity as we are the Muslim Americans of Hamtramck and we want the city to recognize us this way. That happened in 2004, you could say for the first time. And that was right after the very first Muslim American council person came onto council, Shahab Ahmed, who was a Bangladeshi in 2003. Um, and that was his first order of business because, you know, for a few years uh, there had been um, talk among the community about, you know, wanting to um, not only have the call to prayer, but which they did, but to legislate it so that nobody could try to take it away from them. And so everyone knew it was their right. It's not enough just that we have our call to prayer, but if anybody complains, we want to be able to show them in the city legislation, hey, the city has approved of this. Not just show in the city legislation that, you know, all sounds are treated equally, but to show the adhan, the call to prayer, is also considered one of those sounds. Um, and so this was a huge thing that happened at Hamtramck. Um, and like I said, Shahab Ahmed, being the first Muslim American on Hamtramck City Council, well, today, out of six, so he was one, well, you know, there's, uh, yeah, there's six. And so today, every, uh, pretty much er all but one of the city council people are um, Muslim Americans. And um, every year, you know, it becomes closer to perhaps a mayor um, and a Muslim American mayor in Hamtramck. And so since the city's incorporation in 1922, I believe, there's always been a Polish Catholic mayor. 
Um, and so it would be a very big deal for the city not to have a Polish Catholic mayor because there has never been a non-Polish Catholic mayor. Um, and so um, at, by the same token, very, very recently, um, the we have now a city council in Hamtramck that has no Polish Catholic members. We have one non-Muslim, but he's not Polish Catholic. He's not Polish. So re- recently, a few months ago, the very last, or, you know, it's this it's a woman um, named Andrea Karpinski. She um, stepped off council. She resigned. She came off early and was replaced by Yemeni American. A lot of people had a lot to say about that, saying, oh, she now we have for the first time ever in Hamtramck's history, a city council with, you know, yes, we have a Polish mayor, but we have a city council with no Polish Catholics in it. And this is just to say that, like, you know, this identity politics was very important in Hamtramck's history um, and Hamtramck's uh, legislation and history and sense of itself as a Polish Catholic city. So you have an ethnicity and you have a religion. And that's how um, people identified, you know, um, in Hamtramck over the generations. And so it's very natural then for, um, you know, other groups to come in and be identified and identify as, you know, ethnic and religious groups. And so, um, for the very first time in 2003, 2004, the uh, Muslim Americans of Hamtramck uh, across, you know, ethnic lines and re- and racial lines, because also African-American Muslims in Hamtramck were part of this too. Um, and they said that they wanted to have um, the right to have the call to prayer. And um, it turned into a big debate. And the thing that people like to talk about the most, and I talk about a lot in the book, is that there was, um, you know, people who were against it. And then there was people who were for it, who were identifying as Polish Catholics and saying, you know, as followers or as, you know, as the people of, you know, Pope John Paul II, who was an interfaith giant, you know, we have to um, protect our, um, you know, and celebrate our Muslim um, brethren, you know, and so there was this beautiful, you could say, I don't mean to editorialize, but there was this moment that many considered beautiful in Hamtramck where Polish Catholics and certain very key figures, like very key leaders from religious, Polish Catholic religious communities embraced Muslim Americans. Another, uh, faction that embraced Muslim Americans were progressives in Hamtramck saying, you know, not only are the Polish Catholic uh, interfaith people, but also we uh, as as like liberal progressives, as humanists, we are going to embrace this issue and make it and celebrate it. And so there was this um, confluence of the Muslim Americans saying we want to be recognized for our religion, for who we are, for our ability to impact the city through our broadcast. And then there was, we could say two separate groups and more, but the Polish Catholic interfaith and the liberal secular humanists who were very happy to merge with and join with the Muslim group um, to advance the call to prayer. And the reason is that um, it's kind of easy. Um, You know, it's kind of easy. It's kind of like, um, in my opinion, and compared to some other things, um, just to say we all have a right. The Christians have a right to make this noise, so the Muslims have a right to make that noise. It's it's just like a very clear issue about, you know, we can all make noise, whether no matter what our religion. And so there was this moment where progressive and Muslim and interfaith issues all lined up perfectly, and and then um, the call to prayer legislation whether or not it really needed to be passed for legal reasons, it was passed for social reasons. 
And then uh, four years later, I'm in, or three or four years later, I'm in the field trying to understand the politics of this, um, you know, beautiful, uh, you know, um, confluence of interests. And then something else happened again in an election year. Um, Muslim American leaders, prompted by the religious right, um, and decided to um, have a show of strength and a show of force in terms of wanting to um, make a petition against um, an ordinance that had been passed, a human rights ordinance protecting the rights of, um, you know, different communities in the city based on gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, sexual preferences. And so the Christian, so it was passed, but then members of the American Family Association um, had it on their radar. So this Christian group whose mission is basically to, um, you know, not allow for these kinds of ordinances to pass. Um, They had it on their radar and they came to town and they went to the Polish Catholics and they said, hey, you know, we want you to help us overturn this ordinance because this is opening the door for, you know, making LGBTQ um, identities, you know, uh, acceptable. And the Polish Catholics said, well, we can probably help you a little bit, but we're sort of aging out and there's lots of internal um, differences among our community. So maybe go across the street to the mosque. And so then the American Family Association representatives went to the Muslim leaders and said, can you help Can you help us? Can you help us overturn this ordinance? This ordinance, this human rights ordinance, isn't what you think it is. This human rights ordinance has this coded language, and what it really is doing is, is celebrating um, homosexual identities. And um, there was a great consensus among um, Muslim Americans in Hamtramck at the time that they did not want to um, welcome that identity in the city. And they, um, similar to the four years before, thought that they would, you know, have this campaign where they would, um, you know, co- uh, you know um, collaborate with others in the city who were moral people and would be able to uh, stop this ordinance from happening. Well, that didn't ha- it didn't happen the same way. Um, the ordinance was repealed, but it wasn't such an easy kind of um, thing where the interests of Muslim Americans in terms of you know, uh, not wanting to recognize LGBTQ identities, many of their um, collaborators and partners um, from four years earlier didn't want to go along with this. Uh, They didn't see it as the same thing. They didn't see it as a way like, okay, accepting the Muslim call to prayer as an expression of religious identity is one thing, but accepting Muslim conservatism as, you know, a way of, you know, to um, keep uh, the uh, LGBTQ identities, um, you know, submerged in the city or out of the public, um, you know, record or out of public um, legislation, you know, that's not something we can agree with. So there was some unexpected rifts and, um, and, and very hurtful kinds of um, debates and very hurtful kinds of interchanges. And, um, you know, whereas the, um, People who were, um, you know, uh, fighting for LGBTQ um, recognition could, you know, say that Muslims were exhibiting homophobia um, and accused Muslims of exhibiting homophobia. Um, Muslim Americans could easily say that that the other side was exhibiting Islamophobia because both sides did engage in rhetoric that could be characterized as either homophobic or Islamophobic. And so... um, you know, that was a very uh, interesting and productive chapter in Hamtramck history because it um, opened up a lot of questions about, um, you know, what are the limits of um, expressing one's 
um, religious convictions in the public uh, sphere and in legislation. And um, I think that the community is still dealing with those questions. They're still dealing with the aftermath of it. Um, it definitely came up again when certain people who were um, part of the, um, the group to uh, to overturn the petition um, wanted to, you know, run for other offices in the future. Um, the idea, you know, people would definitely use that against them and uh, very effectively saying, you know, this person is running. Um, they were part of this this group that tried to overturn this or, or that did overturn the ordinance. And um, I think that the community has had a lot of time to really um, reflect on um, the Islamophobia and homophobic expressions that happened during that time. Um, and um, it's something that's still, I think pretty much it's, it's still pretty much a, a raw, a raw wound in the community at this point. Um. There's obviously more we could we could talk about if we're uh, kind of running out of time. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity. I don't know if there's any other uh, kind of final takeaways that you wanted to um, to let listeners know about uh, to maybe uh, inspire them to to check out the book. Um, yeah, I think that, like you so generously said, um, there is a lot of stories in the book. Um, and so I designed the book for, um, you know, I, it's, it's definitely theoretical in parts, but I also designed the book so that there's a lot of, um, stories and things so that, um, I wanted it to be a tool. I wanted the book to be a tool for, um, you know, scholars to use, like I said, like, let's have one example. Let's look at what Islam and Muslims in America look like in one small city. Um, and and then what can we come up theoretically um, to add to our understanding of cities and our understanding of Muslim incorporation through that. But another thing I wanted it to be was a tool for teachers to use in the undergraduate classroom. I wanted there to be enough. I mean, based on my experience teaching undergraduates, um, I remember reading this one ethnography and um, a student said, you know, that, that the theoretical part, she was like, the theoretical part is like the, um, the uh, the greens and then the the stories are like the meat. She's like, so it's like when you're trying to eat a bowl of greens and like they have, you know, the meat is flavoring it. So I wanted mine to be like that too, so that there wasn't too much greens for the students. There was also some nice meat, you know, um, and so, and flavor. So I try to tell a lot of stories and things in a way that undergraduates can relate to. So then um, maybe undergraduates would really like latch on to certain stories and characters and people. And then that would be a tool to, um, for teachers to be able to use to discuss the more theoretical aspects, like what is secularism? You know, what is pluralism? You know, what is, uh, what is gender? You know, what is, um, feminism? What is Western feminism? What is ethnocentrism? So, um, I hope that the book is able to be used as a tool in undergraduate classrooms because that's what it was, uh, one of its main intents. And so um, another one thing I wanted to point out was, um, you know, I'm trying to uh, create through, through these stories curiosity. Like, again, I like to think about that fear, curiosity, pol- polarity. Like when you're, when you're afraid of something, you know, it's because you, you shut down. And you just want to defend against it. Um, and so um, if you could become curious, if you could think of what, you know, some examples or some vivid examples of some Muslim Americans um, in their own context, it might make people curious about 
how other Muslim Americans are living and what their choices are like and what their life is like. So I'm really trying to have this book, uh, you know, make people more curious about Muslim Americans um, in order to have uh, more flexibility in terms of, um, you know, how um, how the society is is able to, uh, you know, deal with with certain kinds of difference. Well, it's a it's a great book. Listen, I I really could see it working well uh, in the classroom, um, and especially the way you kind of tied it together there. Um, I'm sure folks that are listening are also interested in the the kind of things you're you're up to now. So, could you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the things you have cooking? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I came to Hamtramck to study three uh, mainly three communities that I'd heard of living in Hamtramck. Yemeni Americans, Bangladeshi Americans, and African Americans, all three, um, you know, groups uh, having Muslim Americans, um, you know, uh, most of Yemeni Americans and most of Bangladeshi Americans in Hamtramck were Muslim American. And in um, African Americans in Hamtramck, there have been um, historically some very important African American institutions and individuals in Hamtramck. But um, when I was in Hamtramck, uh, you know, 2007 to 2009, I did not find um, a very flourishing African-American Muslim community. Um, so I had to, um, what there was, what I did find was, was some institutions on the border of Hamtramck, a parochial school called Al-Ikhlas Training Academy, and an um, organization called Muslim Family Services that had African-American Muslims, mainly from Detroit who catered to or served um, the um, communities of Hamtramck. But I didn't find many African-American Muslims um, in the masjids of Hamtramck. Um, and if I did encounter any uh, and got to know, know them, they would direct me to, to certain Detroit institutions that weren't too far away and said, if you're African-American living in a Muslim living in Hamtramck, you know, you're probably going to go to, you know, the Muslim center, Muslim community center, or like Masjid Wali Muhammad. And so I did have a chance to visit those masjids in Detroit. And that led me to my interest in my second project, which is African American and African Muslims in, um, in Detroit, their history, um, and their cult, like, you know, what kinds of, um, especially social justice work that they're doing, um, again, from a very urban anthropology, particular localized um, perspective. And so um, that's what I'm working on now. Um, and I'm also working on um, a publicly engaged humanities project where I'm partnering with and collaborating with um, African-American Muslim organizations, um, specifically one called Dream of Detroit, which is a neighborhood revitalization association. And um, part of their mission, other than, you know, helping with housing and helping with um, providing services and, and creating better infrastructure for a neighborhood around um, in West Detroit, um, they also have a, a public humanities component um, to create, uh, you know, we're gathering 100 oral history interviews that will be available on a public archive, um, hopefully, and um, website, uh, and even a film documentary. So we're really working towards public outputs. And so that is what I'm um, working on now. And um very excited about um, working on African-American Muslims and other forms of African-American religiosity um, as potential, um, you know, uh, ways to re-envision social justice, especially at this critical moment in, you know, U.S. history, where we have resurgence, we have more attention to um, police killings of African-Americans and enduring forms of, 
you know, um, inequalities, whether it be housing or, um, or jobs or, uh, you know, we really, uh, the, the public attention is, is more, you know, especially for, because of Black Lives Matter, we have more public attention to um, the solutions that could be offered by African-American Muslims and um, African-American Muslims uh, are a, a very important part of that group. So I'm, I'm excited to be working on a timely project. Yeah, that really sounds great and uh, certainly important at this moment. Um, well, good luck, Alyssa, and uh, thanks for making the time to talk about your book. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Alyssa Perkins about Muslim American City, Gender, and Religion in Metro Detroit, published with NYU Press in 2020. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.